Well, if you have a Bible, would you please take it and turn to Ephesians chapter 1? I encourage you to do that, uh, Ephesians 1, and we'll be in verses 7 through 10. And looking very closely at these verses, it will be helpful to have a, a copy of the scriptures open uh, in front of you or pulled up on your phone, however you prefer. Uh, two weeks ago, we considered the book of Ephesians as a whole. If you remember that, we said that it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul from a Roman prison and sent to the faithful saints who were trusting in Jesus in the city of Ephesus. And though it was a letter sent to a different church in a very, mu- in a very different time, its, its message is the same to us today. It's that God in Christ has made us a new people so that we might experience a new unity and walk in a new way. The whole letter reveals this truth of how because of the work of redemption, we are a new people in Christ. And yet these first couple of chapters are particularly focused on how the work of God in salvation has transformed we who believe in Christ. We began looking uh, at Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14 last Sunday and we saw that it's this call to worship God for his work of salvation, a call to bless the God who has blessed us. And as we consider this ever-deepening call to praise, we see that Paul is praising the Trinity, the, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for their united work in saving us and the specific work of each person in the Godhead. Uh, in, in verses three through, three through six, we focused on the work of God the Father and said that we should praise the Father because of his, his eternal purposes in, in saving us. Bless the Lord who has blessed us, we said. He has chosen us to be holy and blameless, and he has predestined us in love to be adopted as his children. He has restored our our fallen souls so that we might reflect him in the world and rest in his eternal love. He has chosen us on purpose. It's not a mistake. It's not an afterthought that you are a part of God's family. He's chosen us on purpose, and he's chosen us for a purpose, namely to image him in this world so that all creation might praise him. So this this praise of the Father then flows into praise of the Son, and we find that particularly highlighted in verses 7 through 10. However, as was clear in verses 3 through 6, the work of the Trinity is not uh, simply divided up. It's not portioned out necessarily. Um, I don't know if you ever listened to Benny Goodman, but there was a Benny Goodman trio. It was Benny Goodman on clarinet and Teddy Wilson on piano and Gene Krupa was playing the drums. And it often, if you listen to that old jazz music, it, it features different members playing a solo at different times. However, that doesn't mean that all the other instruments stop playing, that they just sort of drop out completely. They're still there, but the melody is being carried by one member more than the rest. And as we listen to this song of salvation in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, each member of the Trinity, as it were, is taking a a solo. And the other members are still playing. They're still part of what what God is doing. But one member is maybe highlighted. And here in verses 7 through 10, it's Jesus, the beloved Son of God, who steps forward and plays the melody of redemption, calling us to rejoice in in the beauty of that particular tune. And as he, he plays the song of redemption, we can hear that the Father in particular is sort of playing uh, right alongside him, revealing that our redemption is not only something that was purposed and planned in the eternal mind of God, but it's also that, that this eternal plan of redemption is, is leading to the great fulfillment of God's purposes for the whole world. We see here the, the personal, the very personal nature of redemption, that it comes to our very souls, 
but we also see the cosmic nature of redemption, that God is doing something way beyond just us as individuals. The duet that the Father and the Son are playing in Ephesians 1, 7 through 10 says this to us. It says, praise the Father and the Son for the riches of their grace lavished on us. That'll be our big idea for today. Praise the Father and the Son. Why? For the riches of their grace lavished on us. We're going to see those specific words, the riches of their grace lavished on us in our passage today. We're going to think about what those riches are and how they change us individually and how they change all of human history. So with this in mind, praise the Father and the Son for the riches of their grace lavished on us. Let's read Ephesians chapter 1, and I want to read, uh, as we did last week, all, uh, all of 3 through 14, and then we'll come back and read verses 7 through 10 again to really zero in on those truths. But Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Look back at verse seven. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Praise the Father and the Son for the riches of their grace lavished on us. Looking at, at verses 7 through 10, let's begin with, I just want to bring, begin with two general comments about these verses, and they're going to be specifically about sort of how we read these verses, okay? Uh, first, don't separate these verses from those that come before and those that come after, don't separate these verses from everything that's coming before and everything that's coming after. Of course, this is just good Bible reading, good reading in general. Uh, you want to know the context of what's going on. Uh, last Sunday, I mistakenly spoke of a division in the original text between verses 10 and 11. Uh, rather, while not completely equivalent to an English sentence, it's, it's in verses 3 through 14 that they form this one 200-plus word-long sentence. 
And we need to keep the coherence of this passage in mind as we meditate on it. We, we might be tempted to read verse six and then stop at the period. So verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. However, it's, it's all flowing together. It, it's better to, to read it flowing into verse seven. One commentator, Bao, uh, translates it this way. For the praise of his glorious grace which he bestowed on us in his beloved, verse seven, in whom we have redemption through his blood. It's it's in the beloved that we have redemption. This is not ultimately, though, about, about grammar. It's, it's about us, again, emphasizing the interweaving and the intricate work of the Trinity in our salvation. Related to that, just a second general comment. First, we don't want to separate these verses from the ones that come before and come after them, but also a, a second thought in the form of a question, who are all these he's and him's referring to? Um, who are all these he's and him's referring to? To state it grammatically, the, subject, the subjects of the pronouns in this sentence are not easy to identify. Now that may sound a little dry and a little heady, but I just want us to remember that to understand, God, understand God's word, we have to be careful students of it. We have to be close readers. We have to meditate on phrases and trace arguments, especially with Paul. He's, he's doing this a lot. And we do it not so that we can get big heads, but so that the truth of God's word can fill our hearts and really change us. It's often been said that, that we read the scriptures like we might read a love letter that's been given to us. We pour over the, the phrases. We try to understand and absorb all of the meaning and all of the emotion that's being conveyed. So let me just sort of apply that. Who are all, who are all these he's and him's referring to? If you want to give an easy answer, the easy answer is they're all referring to God. <laughs> and that's not necessarily a cop-out to say. It is all referring to the work of God. But it's, it's not the only answer to give. So look at verse 7. We see here that, that it is Jesus, it's in Jesus that we have redemption. We have redemption through the blood of Jesus. Uh, the connection back to Jesus, the, the beloved in verse 6 helps us to see that. But then there's that, that last phrase in verse 7. It says, according to the riches of his grace. And it seems that this is not actually the grace of Jesus in particular, but it's the grace of the Father. Follow the logic of that into verse 8. The Father has lavished this grace on us in all wisdom and, and insight. He's made known to us the mystery of his, the Father's will, according to his purposes, which he set forth what? In Christ. So it's got to be the Father. That, that phrase, in Christ, at the end of verse 9 reveals that Paul has moved on to speaking about the Father, that's what that means. So seeing who these pronouns refer to helps us to also see something about this passage, and I think it's this, that the whole thing turns on that phrase, according to the riches of his grace. It's at the end of verse seven. We might think of the, the riches of God's grace as being the source both of the, the redemption that's spoken of beforehand and also all of the, the revelation that comes after it. So the this small section in verses 7 through 10 hinges on the riches of his grace lavished on us. Okay, enough grammar, right? Let's think about the riches of his grace. When we think about being rich or you think about riches, we usually think about money, right? But you could be rich in other things, couldn't you? You could be rich in beauty. You could be rich in athletic ability. You could be rich in personality. But countries are said to be rich in natural resources like oil or forests or farmland. 
So here's the question. What is God rich in? What does God have a never-ending supply of? Well, there's probably a few ways we could actually answer that question, but this passage answers that question by saying that God is rich in grace. That his bank account is full of unearned kindness and favor towards those whom he loves. This is who your God is, Christian. A God who is rich in grace. However, being rich in grace is not necessarily good for us. You know, I've read about a lot of people who are rich in in money and they've never given any of it to me. (laughs) But our God is not a God who, who hoards his grace. In fact, the more you think about it, the more you see that if God held on to his grace and didn't give it away, then it actually wouldn't be grace, right? Grace only becomes grace when it's given to others. And we're told that God has not simply given us a a small portion of his grace. It uses this beautiful word. He has lavished us with grace. His grace overflows to us. To take a picture from the book of Genesis, in Christ we are all Benjamin at Joseph's table in Egypt and we receive five times as much as all of the other brothers. This idea of God's riches of grace seems to be a key one in the sentence, which is why our big idea is praise the Father and the Son for the riches of their grace lavished on us, because Paul's helping us see exactly what the riches of God's grace are that we are to praise him for. So what are they? I'm going to give you two. This is uh, where we'll spend our time. The two riches of God's grace that Paul is unfolding for us. Notice first our redemption through Jesus. Our redemption through Jesus. This is the first riches, rich of, first part of the riches of God's grace, our redemption through Jesus. The word redemption has to do with deliverance from bondage or slavery, and that deliverance could only come if a price was paid, a, a ransom had to be paid. We can understand parallels to that in, um, in our own culture and, 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 and even from history. Redemption probably was a much more prevalent and everyday kind of concept for Uh, the Ephesians, but even more important than the cultural parallels, redemption is a key picture of how God has dealt with his people throughout salvation history. The clearest example being the redemption of God's people out of slavery in Egypt. Exodus 6.6, as the children of Israel suffer under slavery to Pharaoh, God tells Moses to tell Israel this, I am the Lord, And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. In his great strength and through great deeds, God is going to redeem his people. And if redemption involves the pain of a price, then what was the price of their redemption? The children of Israel there in Egypt. Well, when we read through the plagues that God sent on Egypt, we see that the death of the firstborn was the last and the worst of those plagues. It was the play, a plague that would have affected Egypt as, as well as Israel, and the blood of the firstborn seems to act as the, the payment for Israel's redemption. Except that God made a way to avoid this tragedy, not by eliminating death altogether, but by providing a substitute payment for everyone who would trust in him. And so all the Israelites sacrificed this lamb. And they placed its blood on the doorposts of their homes that God might pass over them 
and accept the blood of the lamb as payment for their redemption in place of the blood of their firstborn. Now we are not enslaved to a foreign nation like Egypt, but we are enslaved to sin and to Satan and to death. We are trapped and we are hopeless and we need a redeemer. And no matter, how, no matter how hard we try, we can't work ourselves out of this slavery. We can't purchase our own freedom through good works or, or other means. We need someone outside of us to come and redeem us. We need someone else to pay the penalty for us so that we can be saved. So as Paul writes elsewhere, when we were without strength, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Centuries after Israel's deliverance from Egyptian bondage, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming down to the Jordan River. And what did he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Roughly three years after that, as Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples, he affirmed what John had said, that he was the true Lamb of God, that he was the firstborn, and the beloved Son of God that he would die as a substitute. What he talked about that night then, he lived out the next day on the cross. Paul is clear about how we have redemption. What's he say? It's through his blood. The price of our redemption, the ransom that has to be paid, is the blood of the beloved. Child of God, you have been redeemed. You have been purchased at the cost of the infinite, at the cost of the blood of the incarnate Son of God. This is the measure of the grace that God has lavished on us. This is a statement about the depth of God's love for us. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I've been thinking about this, so here's a thought we can chew on together. Maybe it needs more nuance, but here's what I want you to think about. We could say that the price that Jesus paid for our salvation shows us that we have value. And I think that there is truth to that. But maybe it's better to say that the price that Jesus paid shows that we are valued, that God has loved us deeply. Do you see the change in emphasis it's, it's slight, we do have value, but more importantly, we are valued by God. Sometimes Antiques Roadshow ends up on our TV. You know that show where people bring their family heirlooms and antiques to be appraised? I love it, Andrea hates it. Uh, she's not here, but she would say, I hate it. <laughs> and often as we're watching it, she'll see an item get a high value and then she'll say, yeah, but you gotta find someone who's willing to pay that. <laughs> uh, which is true, no matter how valuable something is said to be, unless someone is willing to, to give you that kind of money, then it's just an old chair and it's just an old painting. In our redemption, God in Christ has paid the ultimate price to make us his children. And the fact that he has paid that price is what makes us valuable. His love makes us beloved. And the cost of his payment to redeem us leads us to worship, knowing how deeply we are loved by him. You remember last week we saw the love of God and how he predestined us to adoption, that that shows us that we are truly wanted in God's family. And here we see that we are valued, and we know we are valued. Why? Because God has purchased us 
at the price of the blood of his son. Tied up with being redeemed from slavery to sin is being forgiven for our sins, which is what Paul talks about next. Uh, Forgiveness seems to be either parallel to redemption or or maybe more so a, a key component of what redemption is. So our redemption means that we have forgiveness of our trespasses. Have you ever seen one of those signs that says, no trespassing? It means there's a a property line, right? And you are not allowed to cross that line. Don't go over that fence. Don't go in that field. Sometimes the sign goes a little bit further, right? It says, no trespassing. Violators will be shot on sight. (laughs) I think that's maybe just in the movies, but maybe it is some places. Uh, The penalty then for trespassing is what? It's death. If we think of sin as trespassing, then we can say that there's a a line, and the line called God's law that that we are not to cross. There are things that we are not to do because they defame and they dishonor God. And to cross those lines leads to death. The reality is that we have all trespassed. We have trespassed. We have all crossed the line of God's law, and so we all deserve death. But God has purchased our redemption by his blood, and his death as the sinless son of God has made it possible for all of our trespasses, all of our trespassing to be forgiven. Paul sums a lot of this up really well in Romans 3, 23 through 25. He says this, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone's trespassed and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, as an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. The redemption Christ has purchased with his blood and the forgiveness that flows from it is ours through faith. There's no price that you have to pay because it's already been paid. There's nothing you're required to do because it's all already been done. We're simply called to repent. As Sally Lloyd-Jones says, to stop running away from God and to run to him instead. To repent and to believe, to receive the riches of God's grace overflowing to us, lavished on us in Jesus. What a wonderful salvation. Our minds typically think about this Redemption as, as personal. We focus on individual salvation and individual forgiveness. And that's certainly part of what God is, is doing. But there's so much more to God's plan than simply my personal salvation or your personal salvation. And so we see here in verses 8 through 10 the riches of God's grace, uh, not simply um, in the redemption that we have through Jesus, but also in the revelation of his will. That's our second point, the revelation of his will. The phrases of verses 8 through 10 seem to to build on each other, and they paint this picture of God's intricate wisdom and planning in the accomplishment of our salvation. Uh, Last week, we saw how this was all planned from eternity past, and that reality sort of hangs over these verses, I I think, as well. But here we see, as it were, that God is, is laying out the blueprint of salvation. If you just think about God rolling out this blueprint of how he's going to accomplish salvation and he reveals how every part every part of his of his purposes in salvation was planned in divine wisdom. We see at the end of verse 8 this phrase in all wisdom and insight which we might connect to the next phrase in verse 9. So in all wisdom and insight he has made known the mystery of his will. 
a mystery. Mystery here doesn't mean something that we can't figure out, though God's will sometimes is beyond our comprehension, but rather mystery refers to, mystery refers to something that was previously unknown and has now been revealed. So if we follow this idea of a blueprint, there's a blueprint of salvation all along, but in God's wisdom, he's sort of slowly unrolling it. From the beginning of the world, we, we start to see more and more of God's plan. First, you sort of see the foundation, and then he unrolls a little bit more, and you see the first floor, and then slowly unrolls it until suddenly we see the, the whole house and all of its detail. And he's done all of this in complete wisdom. He's done it in, with perfect insight. It's all been according to his purpose. It's all been according to his plan. Do you believe God has a plan? Or do you think he's just kind of winging it? Some think of God as having made the world and then let it go, kind of like a wind-up toy, you know, and then you just let it go. Or those cars that you pull back and then let it go. It's, what's going to happen? I don't know. He's hoping for the best, though. Others see God as maybe unable or incapable of controlling history. Some people are pretty mad about it. Josh Ritter, a singer-songwriter, sings these lyrics with a tinge of anger. Maybe not, maybe more than a tinge. <laughs> He says, and so it was, I saw behind heaven's just a thin blue line. If God's up there, he's in a cold, dark room. The heavenly hosts are just the cold, dark moons. He bent down and made the world in seven days, and ever since, he's been a walking away. That's how some people think about God. And before we dismiss the untruth of that image of God, because it is not true about who God is, but before we dismiss it, we should at least feel the, the emotions of it. We should be honest that it, sometimes it does feel like God is absent from this world. It is difficult to think about a God who is all-powerful and all-loving and then look at some of the, the carnage that sin is wreaking in this world. We should be able to enter into the, the pain and the anger of those who are searching for God but coming up empty because sometimes we feel it too. But we should also see that whatever we may feel, the truth is that, that God is actively working for his good and for for our good and for his glory. Paul, Paul assures us that God is wise and he is insightful. He has a will and a purpose and a plan and that plan comes together fully in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. History is not haphazard. History is not cyclical. Rather, it is, it is purposeful and we see that all of history is moving towards Christ and now all of history is flowing from Christ. Sometimes we might cry out with the psalmist, where are you, O God? But we'll also cry, how long, O Lord? Because in the midst of all of the pain and the suffering, we still know God has a plan. We know something is happening. It's just not happening in the way that we might think it, it should, but we know that he's doing something, that there is a plan. And the idea of God's divine purpose helps us to understand the, the world as a whole, Scientists look for something called a theory of everything, abbreviated TOE, T-O-E. I just find that funny that that's this big theory of everything is abbreviated TOE. Um, maybe you've heard about string theory. That's a theory of everything. It's trying to come up with something that makes sense of everything. Christianity has a theory of everything. It's Jesus. <laughs> as much as that sounds like the Sunday school answer, it's what everything is flowing to and everything is flowing from. Jesus is the theory of everything. He makes sense of it all. 
He came in the fullness of time to inaugurate redemption. He will return at the perfect time to bring it to completion. Paul says that God's purposes have been set forth in Christ, and his plan is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Did you see how that was all, all these verses are in some ways pushing towards that idea that that God has done what he's done in Christ. Why? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Christ has come to redeem your soul, but he's also come to redeem the entire world, to unify it. Think about sin. So much of what sin does is tear things apart. It, it separates us from God. It, it separates us from one another through our pride or through our anger or through death or through so many other things. It, it, it brings about war and all of the horrors of war. It brings about pandemics and all of their fear. It brings about racism and all of its injustice. Sin separates us from God's good creation so that we destroy it instead of cultivating it. The world, as we often say, is broken. We just might envision the world filled with all of these cracks and maybe we'd zoom out into outer space and just see earth with one big giant crack right down the middle of it. It's separation, it's disunity, it's broken. And into all of this division, Jesus comes. And why does he come? To unite, to bring everything that is broken back together. To unite us back to God. To unite us back to one another. He destroys the division caused by death with the hope of resurrection. He destroys the division of war by making peace through his blood. He destroys the division of racism by uniting us all into one body with Christ as the head. Even creation itself is calling out for redemption, calling out for unity. And even the division in the unseen realm, we're told here, is healed by what Christ has done. This is God's plan. How amazing that it just looked like defeat in the moment, didn't it? When Jesus was crucified, it looked like it just one more tearing apart. One more thing that was ripped. But in the tearing of Christ's body, he has brought all things together. In the tearing open of the curtain, Jesus has brought us back to God. The cross looked like defeat, but it was turned into victory. And so too, we can trust that when the world feels like it is coming apart at the seams, when our personal world feels like it's coming apart at the seams, we know that God is working to unite all things in Christ. And he will one day. We know it will happen. As I was thinking about how to bring this to a close, I thought, you know, I think we're brought back to where we were last week, to the, the place of seeing this call to reflect God in the world and to rest in his love. Paul's going to show us later that the church reflects the Father when we are united in Christ across all of the lines that the world says divide us. This is not a mistake that he says, that he talks about the unification of all things this early because that's what he's pushing towards to show us the unity that's in the church. And we reflect God when we are united together. And in our unity with one another in Christ, we show that only Jesus can unite everything. The unity of the church reveals God's grand goal in all things. So do we reflect that kind of unity? Do we, do we proclaim that Jesus is the only one who can unite all things? That his kingdom is the place of true peace? His kingdom is the place of everlasting joy? Do we believe 
Do we believe when we're, when we're scared and when we're angry and when despair grows in us that God is at work and that he will unify all things in the end? When we believe that and when we live that, that's how we reflect him in our divided world. But we also rest in his love. What love is displayed here? We rest in a love that God has shown us through redemption. Redemption that he has purchased for us. How? The price of his blood. We are beloved in the beloved son. We are redeemed. We are forgiven. Praise the father. Praise the son for the riches of their grace lavished on us. The riches of our redemption through Jesus and the riches of the revelation of his will. Let's take a moment of silence to reflect on God's word and then I will pray for us. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath the debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Father, thank you for your mercy shown to us so clearly in Christ. Thank you for the beauty of your plan that's unfolding before us that, that we see the picture, maybe not fully, but so clearly of what you have done in Christ and how you will bring it all to fruition when he comes back. Lord, help us to reflect you in the unity that you have called us into. Help us to rest in the truth that you love us, that you have lavished your grace on us, that you say we are valued, so valued that you would send your son to die. Lord, may these truths of who we really are in you and what you have done for us in Christ shape us. Lord, help them to push out all the lies that we so often believe, the lies that say that, that there is no plan, the lies that say that we are not loved deeply. Lord, replace all of those lies with the truth that we see here. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.